This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the quarantined ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 597 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I'll be your head number one on this nerdy hayrack ride, but you might know me better as the internet's Joe Patrick. And my name is Matt Baum. I'm going to be your head number two. You know, not too long ago, you mentioned that we were creeping up on uh, episode 600, and I was like, ah, that'll be like next year, dude. What are you talking about? And no. I and then I listened to that episode. It was four episodes ago. I don't know why I couldn't do that fucking math. Well, you've never been good at math. <laughs> this week on the show, the Cosmic Longbox returns, and the theme is when universes collide. Get ready for eight reviews of classic comics featuring intercompany comic crossovers. After that, it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss our must-read picks for next week, nerds. Prepare yourselves, because anything is possible when comics from different companies team up. The Care Bears could end up defeating Galactus. Superman could leave Lois for Miss Piggy. It's Cosmic Longbox review time in the Ziggurat. That's right, the Cosmic Longbox is back, and this week, the theme sees comic companies coming together to play nice and finally answer some questions like what would happen if Batman fought Spawn or if Superman hung out with scantily clad waif model teens with powers. We picked four intercompany crossovers from comics past and it's time these questions get answered. Joe Patrick, why don't you start us off, son? My first review is of the very unwieldy named Marvel and DC present colon Featuring the Uncanny X-Men and the New Teen Titans one-shot from 1982. Let's just unpack that title real quick, because there's nothing grammatically correct about it. Marvel and DC present, colon, featuring, no. Yeah, no, featuring does not come after a colon, no. (laughs) Just featuring, and then, like, you want to do comma, the Uncanny X-Men and the New Teen, but nope, just featuring the Uncanny X-Men and the New Teen Titans. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's bad. Uh, Though Marvel and DC did have crossovers that preceded this one, Uh, X-Men and Teen Titans was the first one that I remember being an epic moment in comics. It took me years before I read it for the first time, and I haven't read it since I was a teen. Revisiting it now, I've gained a new appreciation for the storytelling and the talent involved. After a very strange credits page that touts the importance of Marvel Comics specifically. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Like, it almost like, seemed I didn't like, that like at all. all right, you know what? We'll walk. We'll walk right now unless you give us this credits page, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, where right. Everyone needs to know that we are establishing dominance on page one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we get right into the action with a script by Chris Claremont and beautiful art by Walt Simonson and Terry Austin. Uh, the story starts at the source wall, which is not something that I realized was an important idea at the time, but I guess... Well, Jack Kirby probably dealt with it during his stuff in the seventies. Had right? to have, right? And this is post-crisis, right? No, no, this is pre- oh, this pre-crisis. Yeah. Well, bef- well oh, yeah. pre-crisis. Oh my god, crazy before. Metron and Darkseid have made a bargain to trade information, which of course backfires on Metron and allows Darkseid to seize power, or does it? 
With crossovers like these, you never know whether or not the storytellers are going to pretend that both parties exist in the same universe or not. Here, Claremont does and makes more than one reference to the fact that it's pretty weird that the X-Men and the Teen Titans have never crossed paths. <laughs> like, nobody has heard of anybody. Right. <laughs> That's neither here nor there, though, as the resurrection of a long-dead enemy-slash-friend returns to haunt and challenge the teams. Uh, I'm not going to get too much more deep into the actual story itself, but I thought Claremont did a great job juggling a very large cast of characters without resorting to too many of his very well-known dialogue quirks. Yes, this issue is very wordy. It takes a long time to read, but it feels like a classic superhero team-up in the best way. The art by Walt Simonson, which predates his run on Thor, is stunning. It's stunning. Uh, his character work, I like his actual, like, human bodies, I think they can look a little goofy sometimes. Oh, definitely. But coupled with the sleek inking of Terry Austin, uh, Simonson's knack for detail and the grand layouts, this issue is a visual feast. Uh, no spoilers here, but the final shot of Darkseid on the last page took my breath away. I, like, I, turned the, I turned the page and I saw the final splash and I was like, whoa, that's awesome. X-Men Teen Titans is one of the earliest and best examples of the intercompany crossover, and they absolutely nail it here. I'm giving it a huge buy it. Yeah, it, it's great, and I loved it as well. It was a ton of fun to read. It was way too serious in true Chris Claremont fashion, but it's one of those things where, like, they couldn't come up with a way to make the heroes crossover. So they're just like, oh, fuck it. They all live in New York, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> that is the, the biggest issue I have with a lot of these is when they were like, well, we know we want the characters to cross over. And the only way to do that is just, uh, I don't know. They all live together. <laughs> like, no, they absolutely don't. There's no question that the new Teen Titans do not live on the same earth as the X-Men. No question. Like they, they, they make a, the Teen Titans make a reference in the story to like a building that had been previously smashed by the X-Men in right. another story. It's like, it's like no, no. <laughs> that okay. can't have happened. It just can't. There's no way. And it's like they were trying to like feel this out and figure out how to do it. And they didn't really know. And maybe in Claremont's mind, this was going to lead to much bigger things. They'll read my script and they'll say, Chris Claremont, my God, you're a genius. We should fold these two universes in together gently and just say they've always been that way. <laughs> well, see, now I'm thinking of, I, I'm thinking of other intercompany crossovers throughout the years. And I know that most of ours this week deal with an actual crossing over. Right. Where, like, someone gets farted into a universe. Yeah, like, what yeah. are you doing but, here? Like, I'm even thinking, I'm even thinking of ones that went as far into the 90s where it's like, yeah, Spider Man just goes to Gotham City and meets Batman. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and they don't reference. Right. Uh, you know what? Um, uh, I'm putting a pin in this conversation. Try to remind me to bring this back up when we get to ultimate access. All right. All right. All right. We'll get there. Because they actually reference this point. Okay. So speaking, I'm giving it a buy it. This is amazing. Yeah. It's it, awesome. It, it's a ton of fun just to see all these characters in the same place. 
it's a little ridiculous that they want us to believe they all just live together and they've never like bumped into each other. And it's the Titans, man. They fought fucking Trigon who almost end ended the world. And the X-Men were like, ah, oh, yeah, we were busy. Sorry. You know, like here's Stuff. where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> here's where I'm at with this sort of thing. Uh, if the X-Men live in a world that hates and fears them and also has Superman in it, that is complete bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just it doesn't make any sense. That's not the point. It, yeah. it, this is a very early example of this kind of stuff. It was a ton of fun. It's great Claremont. It's wonderful art by Simonson. Huge buy it for me. It is, it is I would say, peak, peak Claremont. Oh, yeah. It, it's as Claremont as it gets. It's way too serious for what it's dealing with. Like, Days of Future Past <laughs> would have been like one year before this. Right. But yeah. he had already named himself like Maestro, I'm sure. And he probably wore a crown while he wrote Yeah, that. he's the ex-Maestro. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> My review is of a team-up that did, in fact, see a Wizard of Oz-esque. I mean, yeah, pretty much. A tornado came and sucks <laughs> Superman out. <laughs> it's DC Presents number 47 from DC, 1982. This was written by Paul Cooperberg with art by Kurt Swan. It's about that time that Superman went to Eternia and met He-Man. No explanation as to how Superman gets there. All we know is a weird storm shows up over Metropolis and Superman goes, I should check that weird storm out. Whoa, I am being sucked into Eternia. <laughs> and that's the end of that. Swan draws the Master of the Universe like way skinnier than they were at the time. And even in the mini comics that came out of like the He-Man characters that you got, they were still, everyone was drawn like the most rippling, muscled monster people. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, Kurt Swan, Kurt Swan's uh, dudes were way more svelte. I would call it svelte, exactly. Not how I pictured He-Man at all. And Cooperberg wrote them way hornier. Like Prince Adam was always just kind of like, oh, hey, Tila, you're like my strong female friend, you know, because everyone knows I'm gay. You know, that, that was part of the thing. But like Tila walks in here and Tila's looking fine, by the way. And he, Prince Adam goes, good evening, lovely Tila, says totally not gay Prince Adam. <laughs> this version of Prince Adam is way hulkier, too. He's not hiding his strength at all. He's like bending bars and throwing weights around and stuff. <laughs> Swan can't figure out the scale of Castle Grayskull either at all. Like there's times where Castle Grayskull looks massive and huge in scope. And then there's other times where it looks like He-Man and Superman are 15 feet away from Castle Grayskull. And it's about, I don't know, nine feet tall. The size <laughs> of a split level house. Right. <laughs> oh, there's a bunch of like weird He-Man dialogue too, where they like try and just shout things like Cholo's beard and craters of Wegthor, which are not Cholo. things from Masters of the Universe past. I'm a huge He-Man nerd, so much so that I have like the Super 7 He-Man figures up on my wall. I've got like four waves of them and I'm collecting them all. I love He-Man. I don't know where they got this like idea of Eternia and Skeletor. It's totally bizarre. And they introduced the idea that He-Man's mom is from the DCU in this book, which 
I don't, where did that come from? I'm pretty sure it's never touched on again. <laughs> so uh, uh, there's um, the idea that uh, He-Man's mom is from Earth. It Earth. is long established. Earth. Yes, I'll buy that. But like, this is like, no, He-Man's mom, like, knows who Superman is and shit. Like, he's not just from Earth. She's from the DCU, which is something. So, and by the way, there is a good fight with He-Man and Superman, and He-Man has no problem throwing soups around. So, like, as far as we're concerned, on a scale of, like, strength, He-Man can't fly, but he's just as strong as Superman. Eh, He-Magic. Now, we've had this debate before. Whether or not your powers are sourced by magic gives you an advantage over Superman. I mean, it does, though, right? Well, here's where I'm at. We've seen Shazam like, punch him out and stuff. And like, because if you're like, magic. if you're like Captain Marvel, Shazam, and you are like crackling with magical energy. Right. Yes. Fine. I get it. Well, a sorceress gave He-Man his powers and his sword is magic and shit. So I would argue. I get it. I get it. He's a magic dude. Sure, but if you're Superman and you are in, if you are vulnerable to electricity and you get hit by a regular car and are fine and you get hit by a Tesla and are killed, no. I call bullshit. Okay, that's timeout. Timeout. Come on. That's, hey, you're stretching a little bit there. <laughs> he Man is not crackling with magical energy. But it's a difference between like getting hit with a lightning bolt and getting hit with a magic lightning bolt. Two very different things. Again, He-Man is not like throwing magical lightning bolts. No, but his powers, his his super strength and whatnot all comes from magic. I'm saying if you ate a really good breakfast and you are fueled by chia seeds and oatmeal <laughs> versus uh, fueled by coffee and a really sweet granola bar. You're going to have a, well. One is not going to give you an advantage you, over the You other. are going to have a pretty good poop either way, though. I'll say that. <laughs> We learned that He-Man can totally hold his own against Supes, though. This was the year before the cartoon premiered, by the way. So Cooperberg was writing the story, I'm guessing based off the mini comics that came with the figures. Yeah. Which were be. written by Donald F. Glutt with artwork by Alfredo Alcala. They're wonderful, by the way. DC would go on to have a long storied history with the Masters of the Universe. But this was the one that started it all. And a very young Matt Bomb. At his mind blown by the experience. <laughs> Upon revisit, it's not as great as I remember, but He-Man does get to throw the Man of Steel around, and because his power comes from magic, like I said, I'm saying, he beats Superman, mano a mano. I'm giving this a strong skimmit. <laughs> I don't know. I have a hard time not giving stuff like this a buy it because it's such a wonderful artifact. It is. Uh, of its time. There's but some I guess, art like, problems, though. Again, like, Swan is a good artist, but there's some art problems here. I mean, they didn't think real hard in the story at all. Hold the fucking phone. Kurt Swan is one of the greatest artists of all time. I got it. I'm, that's what I'm saying. And this is but not I will, great I Kurt will Swan agree art. that his interpretation of the Masters of the Universe is probably not on brand. Well, not just that. I mean, there's some all kinds of weird, like, spatial relations stuff. There's weird anatomy yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he just kind of like, I'll take the paycheck. No problem. Bam. Sure. Yeah. Uh I, and I will say this, that uh, like if you're a DC fan reading DC Comics Presents and all of a sudden you've got this Superman <laughs> yeah. team up issue fucking he with a bunch of characters up. you've never heard of before. <laughs> yeah. You're like, what is this garbage? 
Yeah. So yeah, I'll I'll stick with a strong skimmit as well. It's uh, a like stunt. I love it personally. I love it as a fan of both, but but it's a stunt comic, no question. It is definitely a stunt comic. Yes, one hundred percent. Next up for me is Green Lantern, Silver Surfer, Unholy Alliances. It's a one shot from nineteen ninety five. By the mid-90s, I was a complete sucker for a good crossover, and Marvel and DC never failed to deliver. Green Lantern Silver Surfer is one of the more important entries in a sea of forgettable one-shots. Oh, man. There were so many. I Okay, I went down that rabbit hole after you brought this up. It's like, oh, my God, I remember this. And then I looked in, it was like, oh, my God, there was like 30 of these. <laughs> well, and a lot of them are really, really great. Yeah. And a lot of them are really not great yeah <laughs> uh in this issue the silver surfer meets up with an unexpected enemy from another reality uh spoilers it's the cyborg superman at this point i had forgotten he's just calling himself cyborg right which is a bit of brand confusion until you remember that at this point in the 90s Vic stone had kind of retired yeah there was no cyborg basically yeah he, he was around. he was off doing his own thing was he he wasn't dead though right no, no, not dead. He okay. was just, he was just not, he was not an active hero. He went back to college football. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> of course, uh, Cyborg has power that rivals the surfer's own. Meanwhile, we see a newly minted Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, meeting a foe that may not, that he may not be able to beat. Luckily, a powerful ally steps in just in time in both situations, uh, what each hero, though, does not know is that these alleged allies are actually all-powerful villains from another universe entirely. The current, at the time, Green Lantern creative team of Ron Mars, Daryl Banks, and, once again, Terry Austin, create this tale. The Silver Surfer speaks in his customary, flowery Shakespearean Ooh, language. Yes, he does. Kyle is the inexperienced newcomer doing his best. The art is outstanding. I love Daryl Banks. I wish that he got more work after his run on Green Lantern. It does have a very mid-90s style, but it also kind of exceeds those expectations. There's a two-page spread featuring the origin of the Silver Surfer and his sacrifice to uh, Galactus. That's really unbelievable. Uh, at this point in the 90s, they were definitely taking advantage of computer coloring and effects, and it shows, but... Oh, big time. It's not, it's not overdone in an, in an annoying way. They use it very well for the most part. Of all the DC Marvel crossovers of this era, this one may have been one of the most important because it foreshadows uh, one of the greatest events of the mid-1990s. You guessed it, Amalgam Comics. <laughs> Green Lantern Silver Surfer is tons of fun. I'm giving it a buy it. I'm not going to spoil what I meant by that last sentence. If you don't know, read it. You'll get it. You don't need to. <laughs> nah. It, this, I, this, carries, this carries directly into Marvel know, versus DC. I know. They, were, they couldn't stop like putting their hands up each other's skirts at this point, and they loved it. You know? <laughs> and I get it. And, and I also loved it. It sold. This stuff flew off the shelves. The fans couldn't get enough of it. I'm not going to blame the art because the art is very good, but there's a lot of like very nineties character design here. That is just 
lousy. <laughs> the cyborg Superman at this point was the worst. It was so bad. He had like well, a, I mean, again, that's not Moron. That's no, not uh, Daryl Banks. I, I'm fault. not saying that's Daryl Banks' fault, but like he looks like a Centurion. Remember those like knockoff toys, like Power Extreme. I do. Power Extreme. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> and it is good, silly fun. We're neck deep in the parallax stuff at this point right here, where Hal is like a space god, which leads really well into you know when thanos shows up and stuff so it it is fun it is a relic of its time it led into a completely ridiculous idea amalgam comics which will forever be famous for what it was i don't really care about it this was too long. <laughs> it was too wordy. You know, like, that is actually, that's the thing about a lot of these. Like, my they, God, they, it was long. <laughs> they decided They decided at some point that they all needed to be 48-page right. prestige format one-shots. Why not just, like, break these up into, like, a two-issue limited series or something? Like, wouldn't you yeah. make more money? I, I don't know exactly. But, like, it just kept going and going. And by the end of it, it was like, I am so completely fucking done with this <laughs> i i'm gonna give it a skim it you're a quitter i'm not i'm not a quitter it was fun but it's not as fun as some of the other it just got boring it got boring after a while and some of the other stuff that i read was a lot of fun and i didn't mind how long it was i'm giving this a skim it oh some of the other stuff you read like the next one on your list yes <laughs> speaking of the next one on my list is Spawn Batman, not Batman Spawn, mind you. That was a different comic. And we'll Important get, distinction. We'll get to that later. From Image, 1994, this was written by a dream team at the time. Frank Miller with art by Todd McFarlane, although Todd McFarlane also claims a plot credit. So we'll talk about the plot in a little bit here. Batman follows a trail of illegal tech and homeless murders to New York, where he mistakes Spawn for the killer. The two fight, and Spawn beats up Batman. Off panel. Seriously, it's just like a wham, boom, blip, ba-bow, boom. Sorry, I kicked your ass, Batman, and Spawn is standing there like, <laughs> what? <laughs> but Batman comes back at Spawn with the help of some cybernetic gauntlets that he found in some of the first pages i don't know and what can only be described yeah. as a cape versus cape battle because todd mcfarlane is too lazy to draw real action at this point he'd rather just draw posed heroes large splash pages and a bunch of automatopoeia all the while a larger cybernetic threat attacks and almost kills batman leaving spawn to save him with satanic magic <laughs> if there was one thing nerds in 1994 wanted to see it was Todd McFarlane drawing Batman. And when they got it, let's just say it wasn't even as cool as the spawn that he left high and dry after issue nine, we figured out. Is that right? 15, 15. Oh, pardon me, 15. Let alone the Spider-Man that he left high and dry. Todd's Batman is a shadow with a mile-long cape, not unlike his spawn. Miller's script is almost as ridiculous as McFarlane's art. He writes Batman like Dirty Harry, calling spawn an undisciplined punk i i don't know what was more of a mess miller's script or mcfarland's ridiculous 90s spawn art this was high 90s comic schlock and i did not care to revisit this at all now the comic that i was thinking of 
was Batman Spawn War Devil by Doug Monick, Chuck Dixon, and Klaus Johnson, which is actually a really good read. I read it right after this, and I get it. Todd McFarlane was hot as hell at that point. He, king of the castle. Everybody loved him. Klaus Johnson's art is so much better in the other one. And he was just poor Klaus Johnson. I mean, like, <laughs> he was getting paid. Jansen, Jansen. Pardon me, Jansen. And he was just poor Klaus Jansen. He was getting paid. Good for him. But he was no Todd McFarlane. He couldn't go buy a hockey team and put a Spawn logo on the fucking Zamboni like Todd did. He wasn't did. spending three million bucks on a baseball. Yeah, for a guy that would show up in front of Congress to admit that he was on steroids at the time, by the way. <laughs> I, I am giving this a leave it. It was fucking stupid. It was just stupid. And yeah, like, there I was mean, no story. There was nothing here. It, like, why do you go get Frank Miller to write this? It, it, and and why does Frank Miller show up with this script? Like, yeah, whatever. Okay, sure. This was like something written on a bar napkin. Okay, so, you know, Batman's <laughs> a detective, right? So he's investigating murder. Okay. And uh, you find Spawn and... I don't know what's going on in Spawn. I don't read it. Oh, Spawn's fighting cybernetic shit because that's all I like to draw, bro. All right, fine. He's fighting a cybernetic thing. Okay, and what happens? Batman dies and Spawn has to save him because everybody knows Batman sucks and Spawn rules. Yeah, all right. I'm mad at DC right now. Fuck it. Let's do it, kid. You know? <laughs> what is this? Uh, this was right. garbage. Okay, all right. I, I'll say this. A plot credit by Todd McFarlane uh, speaks volumes. Yeah, it really does. Uh, I'm no Spawn fan, but I cannot deny the Beatles-esque mania that surrounded him it when was, we were kids. It was insane. And, you know, it's hard for me to look back at this era and then just beat it up relentlessly. Well, but here's the other thing. We do that to Rob Leefield on a regular basis. But we also caveat it by saying Rob is an enthusiastic creator. He is. That's good to his fans. He is. You know, like. You know who's not? We have, we have good things to say about Rob as well. Todd McFarlane's a fucking jerk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. And he's I kind of disagree. I'm not going to be like, he's an asshole or whatever. He's I'm just going to say it. The dude is a jerk. <laughs> so I, am, uh, I, I look at this art by, by Todd McFarlane, and I think to myself, this just looks like Todd McFarlane art. I disagree. And uh, like we talked about this before the show. Um, I I remember looking I remember looking at issues of uh the self-titled Spider-Man comic. Oh yeah. That they gave him. Like Marvel was like, Todd, you are we are giving you the keys to Spider-Man. They made a comic book for him and said, Take it, Spider-Man, yours. And again, he lasted about a year and yeah. and change before he was like, fuck you guys. But I'm Todd McFarlane. But are you gonna tell me that the work that he did on Spider-Man? or the work he did on Amazing Spider-Man, was it as good as this? Because this looks lazy as hell to me. Uh, I will say that I think that his work on Amazing Spider-Man was probably more reined in. Quite possibly. Because he probably had a tighter leash on him. That could be. I still think it was better. But one, Sure. Uh, but once he went on to his own Spider-Man title and then eventually Spawn, Todd was off the leash. Yeah. And I like I will agree he takes a lot of shortcuts, but I don't know that I agree that it was out of laziness. I think it might be because he legitimately thought it looked cool. 
This reminds me of when Metallica decided, you know what? Playing speed metal, that's a lot of work. I think we should just play hard rock. What do you guys think? And they were like, yeah, fuck it. We need more fat, old, aging white fans. Let's do it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> right. You know. Now, I would like to talk about this on Cover to Cover. So call us this Sure, weekend. sure, yeah. I would like to talk yeah, about let's the, have this. Yeah, let's have this Todd McFarlane debate on The cover rise cover and fall of Todd McFarlane. Am I wrong? I mean, like, go back and look at his spawn. I After I read this, I was taken aback. and Because I remember Todd McFarlane being a comic art god of the 90s. Straight up. And I went back and I looked at his Spider-Man. And I looked at some of his Hulk and I, and then I looked at his spawn and honestly, I don't think the spawn stuff holds up at all. I don't think it's as good. All right. Well, uh, this is a conversation we can have on Saturday, but I'm going to go ahead and make a controversial statement that of the, uh, Marvel superstars in the nineties that defected to image, the only ones that actually had an amount of measurable talent that grew over the decades are maybe like Jim Lee. I don't disagree. Mark Silvestri, Dale Keown. Yeah, I don't disagree at all. And Dale Keown barely did anything. And all the rest of those other guys, they faltered. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so I'm giving this a skim it, not a leave it, because I get it. I get the appeal. I get why people loved it. It's goofy. It's silly. There's, <laughs> there is a ridiculous disclaimer at the beginning. <laughs> That says we talked about uh, this too. It makes no sense. <laughs> uh, let me see if I can uh, find it real fast. Uh, it, it basically it boils down to this is not a story that reflects current DC continuity. It is set. Uh, it, oh, here we go. Spawn versus Batman is a companion piece to The Dark Knight Returns. It does not represent current DC continuity. The only thing about this that represent that re- reflects uh, Dark Knight Returns is Batman's attitude. But it, like, but it, it's like that's so Todd McFarlane too, where it's like, well, if I'm gonna have Batman in my Spawn book, which everybody knows Spawn is the most important character that's ever graced a comic book, it better be the best Batman ever. And we all know. That was the Dark Knight Returns, Batman. Yeah. yeah so that's no, the one I want. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, it's very Fuck silly. Off, uh, <laughs> it's very silly. I'm giving it a skim. God. Uh, but yeah, please, let's talk about this on Saturday. Yes. Next up for me is DC Marvel Unlimited Access, number one from 1997. Something we can all agree on. <laughs> right? Yes. Following the events of DC versus Marvel or Marvel versus DC, depending on uh, where your loyalties lie, the companies made two sequels featuring a character named Access, a young man with the power to traverse between the two universes, setting things right whenever crossovers got out of hand. Uh, As I I, uh, implied earlier, there is a throwaway line at the beginning of this comic where access mentions uh, setting Spider-Man, Batman, the Kingpin and Rachel Ghoul back on the correct paths. Uh, this is following the terrible Batman versus Spider-Man uh, sequel one shot uh, from earlier in the nineties where Batman decided to just see what was going on in Gotham. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. It's like the JLA is a thing. Batman is on the team. 
They yeah, saved yeah. the universe, and they live in the same fucking world as Spider-Man? Yeah, nope. nope, they don't. <laughs> A- like, Access was like, oh, this isn't right. Let me put you guys back where you belong. Right, right, right. He fixed zhuzh, it. Zhuzh, zhuzh. He fixed it. Yeah. Uh, unlimited Access is the last time we saw this character, as far as I can remember. But it's also my favorite story featuring him. Uh, Access is also known as Axel Asher, a part-time college student who can't quite keep his lives between the two universes straight. He has a long-term girlfriend in one and another that he's flirting with in another, but he is native of the Marvel Universe, which we find out thanks to a cameo by Peter and Mary Jane Parker, which I thought was pretty cute. What sets the story apart from the others is that here we find that access bounces around not only in space, but time as well. We get glimpses of characters from different points in their various histories, like the bronze age, new gods, uh, and a version of Hal Jordan set just before the death of Superman. We even get a visit from Jonah hex and other wild West gunslingers. Writer Carl Kessel embraces the creative fun of this idea and the art by Pat Olaf is fantastic. Now, Pat Olaf, he's an artist that has consistently gotten work all through the 90s and up to today. Uh, if you ask me, though, in the 90s, he was the 1990s version of Chris Somney. He was an artist that was able to invoke the joy of the Silver Age in a modern way. He made his name drawing Kurt Busiek's The Untold Tales of Spider-Man at Marvel. And it was just like, it was like transplanting Steve Ditko into the modern era and then teaching him all of the modern tricks of the trade. The whole crossover fad following DC versus Marvel with Amalgam and everything kind of faded after unlimited access, but I really loved it while it was happening. And this series led to the return to the Amalgam concept in a really fun way uh, with characters like a uh, a merging between the electric blue Superman and Thor, which I know sounds ridiculous, but it looked awesome. It did look really cool. Now, yes, it was also not a great comic, but it did look really cool. I'll say that. Yes. Unlimited access. Number one is a product of its time. Like everything we've reviewed today, but it's a time I remember fondly. And I think it still holds up today. I'm giving it a buy it. Matt bomb. Why don't you confess what you learned about this comic book? Let me tell you what I think about this comic book. I think I read the wrong comic book because I read DC, Marvel, all access. And let me tell you, that was a real pile of garbage. (laughs) So uh, uh, DC, Marvel, all access was the first sequel to DC versus Marvel. The only thing that mattered by the end of it was that uh, they preserved the amalgam universe as its own reality so that they could revisit it whenever they wanted. Right. And, and like, as you were, it was, it was drawn by Butch Geis. Oh, and it was bad. Butch Geis. I like, and Butch he was Geis. the absolute wrong choice to draw that comic. Oh book. my God. It was bad. Not to mention I was teasing Joe about it. Cause like, while he was reading this review, like glowing about it, I'm like, so let me get this straight. When He-Man beats up Superman, you're like, no way, that's ridiculous. But in all access, Venom has no problem throwing Superman around. Like, no problem. Beats him up in, like, three different parts of the story. Easily. (laughs) And that didn't seem to bother you. No. 
Yeah, so, no, totally different comic. So different comic, bonus review, leave it. <laughs> How's that? Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah all, um, all Access is also uh, famous for uh, almost making Robin and Jubilee date. Yep. Uh, it's it was written by Ron Mars. It's not the worst. It's, it's just not great. It's bad. It's pretty uh, bad. Unlimited access is much, much, much better. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't speak to that because I did not read it. So let's get to my next review. Dark Side versus Galactus. The Hunger. From DC. This is a one shot back in 1995. It was written and drawn by John Byrne. Now, before we go into it, I have to confess, there was a long time in my life that I thought I did not like John Byrne. I didn't get the appeal. I didn't care for his art. It just didn't do it for me. And I think it, it was because I grew up reading Marvel stuff and I came to DC pretty late. So I, I probably came into DC after John Byrne's heyday, after the best stuff that he had done, if you will. With that said, this story, 1995, John Byrne was not exactly at the height of his power, but older nerds than me kept calling him a master. So I picked up this issue, which sees Byrne channeling his genius master, Jack Kirby, and trying to smash his Marvel and DC universes into one cohesive prog rock sci-fi battle between two interstellar despots in skirts. Burns and yeah, they both wear skirts, by the way. <laughs> Burns story they do. starts yeah, they do both wear skirts. with the Silver Surfer discovering Darkseid's home planet apocalypse and being so disgusted by it that he's like, Yeah, I should totally call Galactus come eat this place. It sucks. <laughs> Burns art is pure psychedelic insanity here. It channels Kirby, but it's still completely burned. It's more rounded and detailed madness than Kirby's crackling, edgy, geometric madness. <sighs> Real quick side note. Uh, I am looking at the cover and uh, just to reinforce the whole skirt idea, the coloring of the cover by uh I think Rick Taylor. Uh the his bare legs are colored flesh colored yeah. instead of purple. But it's not just there. They do it in the book too. And I'm like, so he's wearing a skirt and no pants? <laughs> is that what's going on? Well, I mean, that's what a skirt is, man. You don't wear pants under your skirt. But you can wear leggings because it's cold in space. I don't know. Well, not if you're Galactus. You don't give a shit. You've saying. got the power cosmic. The script doesn't care why Galactus has invaded the DCU, and instead it just devolves into cosmic death metal as two genocidal space gods try to out-genocidal space god each other. <laughs> but we get the oh, silver... Shit, yeah, he does, I didn't even notice. He does have bare legs. Through yeah, the through the whole thing. <laughs> Plus, we get Silver Surfer versus Orion in a knockdown drag out. It's Marvel, Car it's Marvel Kirby, DC, cosmic god madness. In a fight we've always argued about, by the way, would Orion be able to beat up Silver Surfer? I say no, but, you know, the result is amazing, ridiculous, cosmic fun. It's a great Kirby homage with the best of intentions, and it really made for a fun read. I'm giving this a gigantic buy it. I loved it way more than I thought. And I, I remember when this came out, I picked it up on the stands and was just like, Barf. No thanks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
<laughs> I really yeah. like this. Yeah, no, I like I uh, like I said earlier, I remember I was a total sucker for every intercompany crossover that came out during this time period. See, and I was this was I did no not different. care. I like it oh, did no, nothing I, for me. I was heavy into it. But here, John Byrne embraces the silliest aspects of everything Jack Kirby did. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm looking right now at a picture of the Black Racer. He is wearing bright blue, bright red, and bright yellow. He is the Black Racer. Right. This is the dude that takes you to the afterlife. He's a cosmic embodiment of death. death. (laughs) And And he's dressed like, like, yeah, he's dressed like he's an Olympic skier. (laughs) Right. And like Galactus in in a, in a skort. It's just like, it's so silly, but. Uh, you know, dark side in a skirt has also never not been silly, but I've also never complained about it. Right. Because Darkseid is fucking badass. He also wears purple pants most of the time. He always has the purple leggings on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I loved this. Um, I had literally no memory of it uh, from the 90s, but I reread it today. And it fucking rules. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, like, it's probably best case scenario for this sort of crossover. You know, it's like, we're taking two concepts. They're vaguely similar. They were created by the same guy. We're going to have them fight. Well, yeah. It's I, not going to mean any, it's not going to mean anything when it's over. But more to it than that, I feel like Byrne took it very seriously and and was no, like No, yeah, exactly. Like he treated with he, he treated loved, it he with obviously care. loves Jack Kirby and he knows he, yes. that Jack created bo- all of these. Created all these characters in this book. And wanted them so badly to be in the same universe. And John Byrne was like, I'm going to do it for you, buddy. I'm yeah. doing it. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, he, he absolutely. It's a love letter. It really is. It's a love letter. He absolutely treated it with care. And it shows. It's a buy it. It's, it's really, really well done. Yeah, it was great. Well done. And it was another one of those like intercompany crossovers where at the end we're like, okay, well, I guess both. Marvel and the DC universe are in an incredibly fucked place now. They're like, nah, it's over. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, so uh, there, there is something in my, uh, there's something in my next review that kind of addresses this point. Uh, it's Superman gen 13, number one from 2000. Let's get into it, man. Yeah. Uh, in the back matter, uh, there's a like a kind of an essay by I uh, I forget if it was by Adam Hughes or the editor or whoever, but uh, he basically says, look, in order to tell a story like this, we have to gloss over certain details. <laughs> like so don't why the Teen Titans never bumped into the X-Men. yes right it be, yeah exactly it's like yeah don't like. Don't stress about it. Just enjoy the ride. But there's also, and we'll talk about it when we're all done. Well, you know what? I'll save it. When we get, when we get to the very end, we talk about the best. We'll talk about it, but. All right. So let me get into my review then. Not long after selling his company to DC Comics, Jim Lee's Wildstorm started crossing over with his new overlords. Case in point, Superman Gen 13, number one, 
unlikely writer Adam Hughes takes point on this issue with art by a young Lee Bermejo. This is another crossover, as we've addressed, that pretends that its universe is simply they coexist. They're all in the same world. They don't even coexist. They are just one universe. Yeah, like, like they're just Gen, there. <laughs> Gen thirteen is from La Jolla, California. Yeah, Superman is is from Metropolis. Yeah, and that's and all like, you really need. And to there's know. direct flights. You know, like if you want to go visit <laughs> well, Metropolis or La Jolla, you know, uh, uh, this uh, this takes place long before the New Fifty Two tried to uh, shove Grifter and Voodoo into the DC universe. Oof. Uh, as much as I hate to admit it, though, this story is goofy fun. Uh, instead of taking a direct flight, like Matt joked. The Gen 13 kids are traveling by train all the way from California to the East Coast. Uh, I guess it's because they don't want to get like, aren't they already always on the run from like IO or something? Yeah. Yeah. Something Const- like that. right? Constantly. Yes. Uh, and of course, they run afoul of the Man of Steel as he is fighting a giant cybernetic ape. Naturally. Somebody has to. Yes. Fairchild gets hit pretty hard and wanders off with amnesia, eventually believing herself to be Supergirl. I'm sorry for the spoilers, but you got to address it. That's the ridiculous (laughs) plot of this comic. It is super low stakes, inconsequential superhero action. But I, I just have to give props. Adam Hughes's script has a lot of funny one-liners and Bermejo's art was out of this world. Even 20 years ago, there are no universes in peril in Superman gen 13, but it's still a pretty fun romp between what had until now been two separate worlds. I'm sorry. I'm giving it a buy it. Joe, this was fucking stupid. <laughs> okay. I know. It was fun. I cannot. It was fun. In stupid. Any good conscience, give this a buy it. It's very good art. It looks very nice. Adam Hughes writes some fun little quippy things here and there. The plot is patently stupid. It's just so look counterpoint. So what? (laughs) Whatever. No, I I'm sorry. Like, first of all, you have this like fair child who is basically indestructible, super strong. Everything. She bumps her head too hard. Gets gets hit by a fire truck. Yeah. Okay, great. She's still basically indestructible. And she's like, wakes up and is like, who, Oh, what happened? Where am I? Who am I? And they're like, Oh, are you Supergirl?" And she's like, yeah, that sounds right. I'm Supergirl. <laughs> Come on. But that, I mean, that's, isn't that basically Gen 13? Like, no. I remember Gen no. 13 from this era. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Gen 13 was an amazing comic. I'm sorry, Randy Andrews. I know you're listening. But Randy, call, call in and back me up on this. It, it was fun and they did a good job of it. And once again, like, I'm not even complaining about the whole, like, oh, yeah, they're just in the DCU, which doesn't make any goddamn sense at all. But, like, this was stupid. I'm giving it a skim at best. There's plenty of creative ways they could have done this. They didn't go creative at all. They told some fun jokes. The plot was ridiculous. The art's great. Skim okay. it at best. But, but Matt, here's this is if you read a comic book, and it is silly and it is ridiculous. I understand. But you have a really good time reading it. I guess I didn't have the same great time. <laughs> okay. Why? Did, I don't understand why. <laughs> I didn't have the same great time. All right. 
And I'm about to speak about another comic book where they gently just decide, yeah, fuck it. They all live in the same universe. It's Wildcats X-Men, The Golden Years. This does not even count because all four issues of this series take place in a different scenario. Yeah, well, they take place at different times in the characters' lives. This one was from Image Wildstorm. Your creative team on the first issue was Scott Lobdell with art by was written by Scott Lobdell with art by Travis Cherist. This is another one of those crossovers that just presupposes some of these characters live in the same universe. Here we meet a younger pre-Claws, pre-Weapon X Wolvie in World War II, where he was the best at what he does, and what he did was killing Nazis back then, with the help of the Wildcat's very own Zealot, of course. Now, this is not heavy on plot. It is not heavy on story by any means. Wolverine is an American soldier who's run afoul of some very bad Nazis. He's, he's Canadian? Well, he's fighting for the Allies, so I don't know if he's Canadian soldier. I think he's, in, I think he's conscripted by the United States. All right. So, because they sort of mentioned that. And Zealot is there doing something else, trying to bust up some weird occult stuff they have. They happen across paths. There you go. Keep it simple, stupid. And you got a great fucking story. This was the first of a four-part X-Cat story that showed members of the two teams bumping into each other across history. And while Lobdell's script is fun, it's very light. Travis Cheris' incredible black and white art, though, just steals the show. I cannot say enough about Cheris' talent. His paneling... The detail of his very realistic thin line art, his action, it is breathtakingly amazing comic book storytelling art that unlike a lot of the other relics of the 90s that Joe and I have been discussing, still completely holds up. I wish this guy drew more. There was nothing flashy going on here. There was no BS. There was no temporal warping or space gods moving to another dimension or just saying, fuck it, they all live together. It was just a good story. And I'm giving this a huge buy it. I love this comic. Yeah, I mean, it totally it totally does make sense that uh, the time frame in which these characters meet. Like, yeah. Why would they know each other? What, like, why would Zealot have heard of Wolverine? Why would Wolverine have heard of Zealot? No. And they're both ageless characters as well. She's an alien with a much longer lifespan. He's Wolverine. He's been around since fucking, what is it, like 1840 or something, mining yeah, coal. Yeah. <laughs> as far as explaining why two groups of characters ex coexist without some sort of cosmic fart cloud. This is probably the best one of the week. Oh yeah. But um yeah, I totally agree with you. The uh, the art, Travis Cherist's art, I think it's actually pronounced Charay. Yeah, I think he's French. I think you're right. Uh but his art is and always has been phenomenal. I, uh, this is a beautiful comic book. I would argue he is the most easily the most talented artist to come out of the 90s. Without question. The well. dude is stunning that is a very bold statement name that somebody I will not agree with name somebody better that popped up got started in the 90s and came out of it i i challenge you tony harris i disagree i think he's great i don't think he's on the same level as cherist yeah really don't. no i think i don't think now, you're thinking cherist also has a very way I'm a very of. much smaller body of work so you could say that tony yes, harris very true 
definitely went out there and did the job every day and won more Super Bowls. I don't, yeah, without a question. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, I, I like, there's no debate. This is awesome. Um, Scott Lobdell in the 90s versus Scott Lobdell in the 2010s. <laughs> Uh, are two different writers oh, yeah. and this was Scott Lobdell back when I thought Scott Lobdell was pretty great. Scott Lobdell was great. This was he this was like Scott Lobdell top of his power and he, the X run that he was on at the time. Fan fucking tastic. It was so good and then mm. something happened and I don't know what it is specifically but he changed. <laughs> he definitely changed. I mean, I don't know if his X run holds up as well as you think it does, but anyway, that's a totally different debate. Uh, this is a buy it for me as well. It's, it's a wonderful read and you don't have to be a Wildstorm fan to appreciate it. Not at all. All right, Matt. So which book clapped universes together? Bestest of all. So we talked about this, about the idea that you can either decide these characters are going to be pulled into another universe, visit another universe, or yeah, fuck it. They all just live in the same universe. (laughs) And that's basically how the intercompany crossovers go. I think they succeed best when you do something like what happened in Dark Side versus Galactus, where we have two space gods who could literally visit another universe whenever they wanted to. And they very gently introduced that idea in that comic book. And it made sense. It worked. I'm giving Dark Side versus Galactus my favorite because it, those are perfect characters to do this stuff with. Absolutely perfect. I'm not giving it, I love this X-Men issue, the Wildcats X-Men so much, but again, it's kind of lazy to just be like, yeah, you know, Wolverine bumped into her in World War II. Okay, time out. There's a whole lot of Wildstorm future that definitely doesn't happen in the Marvel Universe. But when you take something like Darkseid and Galactus or even the Silver Surfer or Orion, any of those cosmic characters, yeah, they can just slip right through realities. I don't have any problem with that. And I think that this crossover that John Byrne did was so perfectly executed and fun and ridiculous and just takes the whole idea of the intercompany crossover and just did it better than any of these other ones that we read. I loved it. It easily wins for me. I mean, that's kind of what I liked. That's kind of what I liked about the green lantern and the access issues is that they dealt with it in the same way. It's like, yeah, of course Thanos can travel back and forth between sure, realities. Yeah. What, are you kidding me? Uh, and then this uh, Access kid, that's his whole deal. Um, but I do agree. I think that it was best utilized in Dark Side versus Galactus, The Hunger. Uh, it is also my book of the week. Yeah, I mean, it, and I, we're getting nerdy here. We're getting super into the weeds and nerdy. It, like, But if you put yourself in the position of the reader that picked this up off the stands, I would want it to make a little fucking sense. <laughs> you know, just just the, that's, the slightest amount of sense would be great. And that's so funny because I really could care less. <laughs> because I think if you're picking up, for me, I think if you're picking up a comic book that's about two different uh, comic book universes crossing over, you already know the score. 
Well, sure, but that doesn't mean and you, like you can't put a little gives thought a shit into about it. the details. It, it doesn't mean you can't put a little thought into it and say, you know what, we're going to treat That's this universe fair, with respect. Fair, fair, and we're going to yeah. treat this universe's fans with respect. Otherwise, it's just being like, look at me, I'm making Thor my Thor action figure smash into my Wonder Woman action figure. Oh, and they're gonna have a weird baby. Yeah, fuck it, comics, bro. You know, like, get get out of here. <laughs> yep, fair enough. Fair enough. Boom! That does it for reviews this weekend. Boom! Is a sound of the arrival of champions to the Starlight Citadel, as seen in the pages of X of Swords Stasis number one. By the way, when all those Captain Britain characters show up, oh man, I squealed. <laughs> I love that shit so much. <laughs> uh, slight spoiler alert. What do you, how do you feel about Captain Britain's, uh, pardon me, Brian Braddock's new superhero identity? Uh, I'll talk about it later. I don't hate it, but I just wish he would be Captain Britain. You know? Sorry, Betsy's Captain Britain. Now. I know, I know. And I love Bets. Don't get me wrong, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> the only Psylocke I'll ever need. This onomatopoeia of the week comes courtesy of our personal legal champion, Ryan Forrest, via the Twitters. If you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, you can post it to any of our social media accounts. You can send it to edanerd at gmail.com or you can call us 402-819-4894. You can make the noise with your damn mouth and we will play it on the show. Just don't forget, you got to tell us where it comes from, the issue, and what the sound is. That's the most oh, important We, we part. need context, people. Context. Right. That is it for reviews, and now it's time to head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to clear some space on the Entertainment Center for our new PS5. And let me tell you, it is gigantic. It's huge. I had no, like, I saw pictures, and I was like, oh, there it is. And then, like, I saw a person holding it, and I went, whoa. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bigger than a large baby. Yeah, it's fucking massive. Our buddy Metron did us a solid and brought us one from tomorrow, but we didn't think about the fact that their online game market isn't open until midnight. And that's not Metron's fault. He doesn't know how video games work. Know, He's a busy guy. So since we won't be able to grip and rip some Spidey Miles Morales style until tomorrow, let's tell the nerds about the comics they should be reading next week. My pick for next week goes to Sea of Sorrows, number one from number one of five. It's Sea of Sorrows, if you will. You got to do it with more like a, a Sea of Sorrows. Not, not a T-H, but a, a Sea of Sorrows. So more of a Sylvester. There you, <laughs> you go. Will. You got it. Nailed it. From IDW Publishing, it's written by Rick Duick with art by Alex Cormack. Here's your solicit. Deep sea adventure with a horrific twist from the creative team behind last year's hit horror series, Road of Bones, comes an all-new tale of bone-chilling terror. In the aftermath of the Great War, the North Atlantic is ripe for plunder by independent salvage crews. When a former naval officer hires the SS Vagabond, he leads the ship to a sunken U-boat and a fortune in gold. Tensions mount as the crew prepares to double-cross each other, but the darkness of the ocean floor holds deeper terrors than any of them have bargained for. Plunge headfirst into the icy waters of dread with another historic tale of terror from writer Yaya Yaya. 
I told you that. So Road of Bones was a comic we reviewed. I think I reviewed it, but we gave it a buy it. I know that. It was great. And it was about a Russian gulag. What these guys do is they write really... Dis- uh, no, I reviewed it, I think. Did you? Okay. Yeah. They write very disturbingly accurate historic horror. And yeah, it and they're good is at it. Great stuff. I am excited to see what they do with this. This is going to be some fun, feel bad horror comic booking. Joe Patrick, what's your pick? Did I pick two picks of the week in a row from the Black Hammer universe? You bet your bippy I did. I was going to say there's only one way to find out. <laughs> That's right. Uh, my pick for next week is Barbalian, colon, Red Planet number one from Dark Horse Comics, written by Jeff Lemire, with art by Gabriel Hernandez Walta. It's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. A groundbreaking new sci-fi action series in the world of the Eisner award-winning Black Hammer universe about prejudice, honor, and identity. Mark Marks has found his place on Earth as both a decorated police officer and as the beloved superhero Barbalian. He's John Johns. Same thing. I can't imagine what you're talking about. (laughs) But in the midst of the AIDS crisis, hatred from all sides makes balancing these identities seem impossible, especially when a Martian enemy from the past hunts him down to take him back dead or alive. I love Black Hammer. I don't really feel like I need to say it again. Yeah, you guys should all be reading Black Hammer. It is intensely amazing. By the way, Gabriel Hernandez Walta. Wow. That dude is crazy fucking talented and does not get enough work. Hire Gabriel Hernandez Walta. Do it. Do it. I'll read him. I'll read him doing just about anything. I was trying to come up with something clever that I would read him doing and nothing popped into my head. Drawing the phone book. I almost said I would read him doing Vampirella, but I'm not touching Dynamite Comics right now. So No. <laughs> the THN Trade of the Week goes to Book Tour, the graphic novel from IDW slash Top Shelf. They bought them. It's written and drawn by Andy Watson, 272 pages. It's $24.99. Here is your solicit. A page-turning, Kafka-esque dark comedy. In brilliant retro style, this graphic novel watches one man try to keep it together while everything falls apart. Upon publication of his latest novel, G.H. Fretwell, that's a great name, a minor English writer, embarks on a book tour to promote it. Nothing is going according to plan, and his trip gradually turns into a nightmare. But now the police want to ask him some questions about a mysterious disappearance, and it seems that Fretwell's troubles are only just beginning. In his first book, for adults in many years, for adults? Did he write teen teen stuff, too, or YA, or... I'll get into it. Acclaimed cartoonist Andy Watson evokes all anxieties felt by every writer and compresses them into a comedic gem of a book. It's witty. It's surreal and sharply observant. The book tour offers a captivating lesson in letting go. So Andy Watson was a huge presence in the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. Uh, he did stuff at like slave labor, uh, like skeleton key. He oh. was, he was, I, th- I think, I think he was the original writer of the Buffy, the vampire slayer comic. Uh, he did, uh, 
Let's let's so, fact check that our, before we. He did a graphic novel called Slow News Day, which was very popular. Yes. Love fights. Yes. And so, like, eventually, Andy Watson kind of disappeared from mainstream comics and started doing uh, all ages books. Andy Watson uh, was, in fact, writing uh, Buffy for Dark Horse. Yes. Yeah. Um, he did. Uh, he did a series of books uh, surrounding a character called Glister, uh, another character called Gum Girl. And yeah, so Andy Watson, this is his kind of return to mainstream comics after a long time away. And I am thrilled because I think he was uh, a great talent. And uh, this sounds super fun. I agree. G.H. Fretwell is an amazing uh, name for perfect an author obscure name. British writer. Are you kidding me? That's fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, welcome back, Andy Watson. I'm really surprised because uh, DC is reprinting the Howard Porter, Grant Morrison, JLA. And I thought you were going to pick that. It comes out next week. I tend not to pick omnibus books because I know they're not for everyone. Okay. It's not an omnibus though. I didn't think though. I thought it was just like they're. Oh no, I thought it was an omnibus. Oh, I don't know. I'll have to look. If it is fucking buying it. I mean, you look, Hey, JLA by Morrison and Porter. Also an absolute buy. Totally. <laughs> now that you know what we're reading next week, we want to hear about what you're excited to read or what you think we should be reading. But please, be sure to add these comics to your pull list so you can play along and do your local comic shop a favor as well. Excelsior! Oh. <laughs> that is it for THN 597. Next week, we're back to talking about new comics. And look, yes, I promised you Jason Sachs was going to show up this week. And he's going to make us look better because he's a smart guy and he's an accomplished author. He'll be here next week, okay, to talk about who the hell is the Taskmaster. It just makes more sense next week because next week I'll be reviewing Taskmaster number one. It's true. Until then, Joe Patrick, please give these nerds a question of the week. This week's question was submitted by New Guy via the THN forums. Apparently, America's premier asshole came up with a plan to leave Walter Reed Hospital acting weak, but then perking up and dramatically ripping his shirt open. I will have you know, in a current poll, 3% of America believes that he won the election, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Revealing a Superman logo underneath. Thankfully, this dumb shiz did not actually happen, but it very easily could have. Imagine, if you will, a character of Jewish creation who is a refugee who regularly sacrifices himself for the greater good and famously took on the KKK being used in a cheap electoral propaganda stunt by a neo-fascist who stole money from a kid's cancer charity. Uh, You know, it's okay to talk about him now because the election is over. We all know who we're talking about. It was okay to talk about him beforehand. We didn't have to be scared. It's Joe Biden. (laughs) Yeah, that mother... Mm. (laughs) Don't get me started So my question is What do you think was the worst Example of misuse Appropriation or fundamental Misunderstanding of a comic book Or other nerdy character Mine came to me pretty quick Actually a couple came to me And then I was like nope I have to talk about this one Because Mm. it's awful (laughs) So we'll do that this Saturday But we're going to talk about all kinds of other stuff 
too. I would love to have this Todd McFarland discussion. I would love to talk to you guys. Am I wrong? Hit me up. Let me know. We would love to talk about it's true. your favorite cro- intercompany crossovers as well. When you think they worked. When you think they didn't. Everything that we talk about on the show is part of the fair game. game. It's fair. Yeah. Come hit yes. us. Cover to Cover is back every Saturday, 1030, live on our Facebook page. And it is the new home for nerd news. So call us at 402-819-4894 or shoot an MP3 of your answer to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. You could, you will. Let's not lie. Yeah. You will be You're, internet famous. Are you? But let me ask you a, a, this question in, in all seriousness. Are you ready to be internet famous? That's what you need to ask yourself. Okay? I, because like, your life is going to change. Things are going to be say, fucking I'm saying right now, man. calling in to THN cover to cover is only for people that are ready. Yeah, because it's going to change embrace, like To ride the wave. Otherwise, so like forget going to the grocery store like you used to. Things are going to be different. All right? Ride the lightning, baby. Remember to keep it two minutes or less. We need to share the air. We uh, hopefully get a lot of callers every week. And we just want to make sure everybody gets equal time. If you're new to the show and you're pretty sure that we have never had sex with the strangers that we constantly say are throwing themselves at us, I assure you it's because it, you just haven't heard enough. The good news you is... Have, you are the only one that says that, by the way. No, it happens to you too all the time. You're just quiet about it. You don't like to brag. Me? I like to brag. <laughs> you're not a kiss and tell guy. That's fine. Whatever. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> the good news is you can hear the entire run of THN on our digital long box archive at twoheadednerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. So we want to thank donors like John Bunger. By the way, let's just talk about John Bunger for a second. I play D&D with him. He's a good friend of mine. He's also an amazing creator and a fantastic follow on Instagram. He is working on a full 3D printed rendering of Poison Ivy right now. That is simply stunning. And I watched him making that shit like big... That dude, I don't even know how it works. It looks like goddamn uh, magic. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess the takeaway is don't give us the money, give it to John Bunger. No, 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 no. Give us the money. Screw you. <laughs> Point being, John Bunger's a great follow. <laughs> no, he uh, like he he recently did a uh, a series of muscle-sized 3D printout characters based on Deep Space Nine. They're so fucking cool. And I've never wanted anything more in They're my entire so life. so cool. And I love that all their hands are ridiculously huge. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. Just like muscles. It's great. On this Veterans Day, we want to thank everyone in the comics industry that serves or has served, including our listeners, with a special shout-out going to Jack Kirby who made a nice second career for himself fighting real-life Nazis. True. Word to you, Jack. We really could use you right now because God knows I don't think they're going away anytime soon. Who, the Nazis? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know you were going there. (laughs) Sorry. Who else was I talking about? Until next time, True Believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just come punch you in the face just like Jack Kirby did to his sister's date when she brought home some palooka from the neighborhood. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. <laughs>